you guys for gathering with us here uh, this morning at Mission Church, and uh, I appreciate your attendance and for you gathering with us uh, this morning. Today we continue a sermon series called King and Kingdom, and we are working through the Gospel of Matthew, kind of line by line, verse by verse. Sometimes we get hung up on a word, sometimes we get hung up on a verse, sometimes we get hung up on a chapter. But our goal over the course of this next year is to work through this gospel, looking at King Jesus and seeing that not only as king um, does he have authority, but also that he has a kingdom. And so that there is a city that we live in, his kingdom, that is also indwelling in Bowling Green. So it's a city within a city that God has a people amongst his people that he has an economy, that he has a, a policy and procedure, that he has a government within the government, and it is him, and that ultimately Jesus reigns supremely sitting upon his throne as king. And so if you have been saved here today, congratulations, you also have admittance you are a, a citizen in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, standing on side of a mountain, he begins to, to preach this sermon to a great multitude, and yet it is generally for everyone, but it is specifically being spoken to those whom he has saved, his, his early disciples, that is who he's truly trying to get at through these words. And so as we have been working through this, and we've been looking at all different sorts of aspects of the Sermon on the Mount and these different things and ways that, that we as believers are to live, and today is no different from that. In chapter 6, um, we see that Jesus begins to take a, another turn in his delivery methods. Um, he begins to to speak as, as he has been speaking, um, that we have a, an action that is supposed to ex exude from us. And we have several of those, and we heard from, uh, from Brian Lewis last week as, as Jesus began to speak in what it means to, to give to the poor and to serve the poor. This week it is on how do we pray like Jesus. Next week it'll be looking at how do we fast like Jesus. The main thesis of this kind of three sermons of giving, prayer, and fasting, the thesis of that is actually found in chapter 6, uh, verse 1. I believe it says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So back up to to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is telling these people, hey, your righteousness has to exceed the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? Man, they're considered to be the all-star religious people. These are the goody-goodies. They, they know the law. They live out the law publicly. And Jesus is saying to the cream of the crop, to the best of the best, he's saying to his disciples, your righteousness... Your right living, your holiness, your set-apartness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. So he says, you've got to live righteous. And then he gives a warning here in chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Beware, though, of practicing that righteousness before other people. So we learned last week from, from Brian talking about you know, giving to the poor so that it makes you feel better. All right, there's something guilty within you to comprehend or contract 
contradict that guilt you give to make yourself feel better about yourself so that people can see you and they will witness watching you do these things and admire you. And we learned that that is not appropriate. And we're going to see that again taking place today in a similar theme with Jesus. Now, Jesus is not suggesting in these three sermons that, that people should not give, that they should not pray, and that they should not fast. But what they are warned of is that they should be warned of simply practicing these principles in front of others and for the approval of others. In today's passage, Jesus is going to discuss how do the citizens of his kingdom, how do we practice the spiritual discipline of prayer? Or in essence, man, how do we talk to the king? How do we talk to God? How do we have conversations with God? Now, confessionally, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, um, this morning's subject on prayer, and specifically the Lord's Prayer, um, is something that we should probably spend the next several months going to through line by line. Each one of these today is a sermon. But here's what I've decided to do is what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to, for today, is I'm going to do like a 30,000 foot view of this to really get to what is the holistic approach that Jesus is trying to teach us and teaching us how to pray. What is the primary thing that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples about practicing their righteousness? And then if you know anything, or if you've read, read the book of Matthew, Matthew talks about Jesus praying over and over and over and over and over again. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to paint a picture of like the 30,000 foot view of what is the primary focus that Jesus is talking about in context Knowing full well there are many secondary things. I could spend an entire several hours or days talking about when Jesus says for the kingdom of God to come now on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? We could do that. And we're going to come back to this sermon over and over and over again. It's like, I don't know, a month that I'm preaching on prayer again. And so, um, just so you kind of know where we're going, and for you nerds like myself... It's all good, all right? I've not become a topical preacher, and uh, we're going to get some meat and potatoes here, but we've got to preach the way that Jesus means it. That's the primary focus, okay? So, let's look at this. In verses 5 through 7, um, Jesus, once again, he's using this common pattern of pointing out a belief of the Pharisees, and, and how that the Pharisees' man-made religion and false righteousness is not what he is after. In verse 7, he compares the practice of the Gentiles and the pagans in their occult worship. Each illustration begins with this, when you pray. So Jesus is giving his citizens very practical handles. Very practical handles. The, the, the pattern of Scripture is deep theology practice. All right? A lot of people like to reverse that. Come up with a practice and force the doctrine and theology to match that. That's wrong. Okay? We've been talking deep, deep theology, and I'm thankful that Jesus kind of gives us handles, aren't you? And that's what he's going to do in giving, in prayer, and in fasting. And so when he, when he looks at this, he's comparing with what he is teaching compared to that of the Pharisees and also the pagans. So let's, let's read 5 um, through 7 again. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. We learned last week, 
hypocrites. What are they? Pretenders. They're actors. They put on masks. They come out here. They play a part. But then their lives are different than that part. You know, um, the guy who plays Captain America isn't Captain America in real life. <laughs> Spoiler alert. All right? Just so you know. Okay? So he's playing a part. So he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They play a religious part. They act. They pretend for the young people. They're posers. Like if I get on a skateboard and I wear Vans and skinny jeans and a flannel and a flat bill cap. Now that partly looks the way I dress when I'm not preaching. But if you put a skateboard under my feet, you will quickly realize that brother cannot skateboard. He looks like a skateboard. He can talk Tony Hawk language. Brother can't skate. He's a poser. Okay? That's what a hypocrite is. He is a poser, like most of the musicians in the world today who need auto-tune. All right? It's crazy. So we see this, this practicing in his word where he says, Do not, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they love to be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for many words. All right, so we, we get this idea that Jesus is now, again, practically going to be talking about prayer. We've learned this way to pray from our religious leaders, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. How do you want us to pray? So these Pharisees, these Jewish all-stars, they, they were not as concerned about practicing their faith in private. They were more concerned not about what was happening inwardly and when no one was watching, but they were more concerned about their faithfulness being shown in public, having outward expressions of their faith. These Pharisees, they were known for standing in public and praying. That was a common thing, okay? It's not bad to pray in public. That's not what Jesus is saying. But they loved to pray in public not because they loved God, not because they loved to pray. They loved the approval of man. They were obsessed with people highly thinking, or people thinking highly of them. Any sinners in the room today fall into the trap of being consumed? Every time I meet somebody who doesn't like me, it is always their fault. I'm like, you must not know how awesome I really am. What do you mean you don't like me? I'm awesome. Okay, you'll be on a short list of about six people who don't like me. All right? I mean, that's, that's what begins to work through our minds and their minds. They love to be worshipped. They loved self-worship. They loved to pray in order for people to go, man, that was a prayer. We have this friend, we talk about him, and we joke to him about his face, but the running joke is the brother can read the back of a potato chip bag and it sound holy. That's the kind of voice this dude's got, all right? When he prays, I think God's impressed because I'm impressed. I'm like, I'm never praying in front of that guy. He's that good at it. I mean, he can barely, barely, I say unto thee, 
I mean, he's using like all these seminary words that I have purposely forgotten in his prayers. I mean, God can't spell those words that brother's saying, okay? But I am highly impressed with that guy. I mean, to the point I'm like, I ain't praying. You, you got this. Like, you got a special connection. Like, the Shekinah glory of God is going to fall on this place because you are praying. They love that. The Pharisees love that mentality. They love the praise of people. They love to be patted on the back by people. They were obsessed with this. They wanted to be celebrities, celebrity Jews, honored, respected, well thought of, worshipped. Prayer had become a ritual and also of, of repeating the same phrases over and over and over again, believing they could enact God to move. If we pray like this, God will actually move. If we will pray this equation, then God will actually fulfill our request. If we do this or, or do that, then, then God will actually hear us. Instead of it being organic, prayer had become very, very mechanical. How I many of you have ever been in certain circles, even in Christendom, and whenever you get together with those people, they always pray the Lord's Prayer? Anybody? I remember the first time I ever went to an FCA meeting, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and at the end of that meeting, every time, they pray the Lord's Prayer. If you've played sports before, a lot of times before games, people get together in the huddle, doesn't matter if you know Jesus been to church your entire life, after about the fourth time, you've got this little cadence memorized. You all huddle up before you start cussing out people on the field. But hey, we said the Lord's Prayer beforehand. Or what about this one? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. All right? I thank the Lord for this food. Let's eat, or whatever it is, you know? These repetitive, mechanical prayers. They'd also um, written prescribed prayers for almost every object and occasion. So I just imagine this guy on the side of the road. This is thus saith Eric, not thus saith the Lord. But I just imagine a guy, as you're going into church today or gathering at the synagogue, I imagine a guy out there and he's like, need a camel. Anybody need a camel? I got this prayer right here. Say this prayer, by this prayer, say it, and God's going to give you a camel. Anybody need a wife? Anybody need a wife? If you'll say this prayer right here, 30 times a day, God will increase your territory. Hmm. Sounds like a book that came out a few years ago. Prayer of Jabez. We'll go ahead and knock that out. All right? That some idea that if I pray this many times or in this certain way or in this certain posture, then God is going to answer my prayers. We're trying to manipulate God or make God move. Instead of prayer being a conversation between that person and God, it had become an incantation, it had become a spell. Might as well have had some, you know, like bats' wings and lizard tails in a smoldering pot. Because that's the equivalent of what they were doing and even a lot of people today believe about prayer. 
They would strategically place themselves on busy streets in the synagogue, and, and they would pray these long prayers. Now, my wife makes fun of me for praying really long. Maybe I need to shorten up. But believing that the longer they prayed, the more likely it would be to be answered. But even more important, the longer they prayed, the listeners of that prayer would be more impressed with them. Okay? Is it wrong to pray in public? Nope. Is it wrong to pray on the street corner? No. Is it wrong to, to pray in a corporate gathering like this? No. What is wrong is, is imagine strategically placing yourself where you knew that there would be a lots of people for you to raise your voice in prayer and to be heard. So, Scottsville Road, Friday, 5 o'clock, also known as hell, is a place that you would go to and you would stand on the street corner yelling and screaming and praying so that people would be impressed with you. Now, as many of you guys know, if you've heard my story, if you're new to mission, um, before becoming a Christian, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, 19 years of my life, I became a Christian at 19. But for the previous 19 years, up until I became a Christian, and this is not thing against saying that Pentecostals aren't Christians, um, but I was just not one. Um, but I, I only knew of Pentecostal church experiences, okay? And so if you've never been to a Pentecostal church, um, when they say, all right, we're going to pray, everybody prays at once, right? So it'd be like all of us all of a sudden talking in here, okay? Now, is God big enough to handle and listen to all those prayers? Yes, there's 7 billion people in the world right now. He's probably able to handle that. He's not even taking his feet off the desk, all right? Brothers relaxing, chilling, listening to all of those prayers and handling them according to his providence. But in, in the Pentecostal church, this is often what would happen, not in every situation, but it, it seemed to be, even as a child, that it became a competition. All right, let's pray. So everybody starts bowing their heads and praying. But before you know it, it was like a slow clap. Right? And then when you slow clap, before you know it, everybody's like... And that's, that's how the prayers seem to be in the room. Because, so, man, you'd be like, somebody's praying over here. Somebody's, oh, i gotta be, I got to outdo them, right? So they start praying louder over here. And then this person starts praying louder over here. And this person starts praying louder over here. Uh-oh, Sister Margaret's jumping up and down over here. I'm, I'm praying like this, watching everything that's happening, all right? That's what it was like. And then I started going to a Baptist church, and they'd say, let's pray and then one dude or one girl would pray. I'd be like, it's so weird. Why isn't everybody praying? It was such a culture shock to me. Okay? But Jesus is saying, man, this competition of trying to outdo each other, that's why when we get to the book of Corinthians, we'll see that God is a God of order, especially in the worship gathering, so that it doesn't become a distraction. Not too long ago, somebody said to me, oh, like, you know, Sister So-and-so who loves to dance in the back of the room. And I was like, okay. Because I'm here to tell you, if, if one of you busted out the, the dab in the back of the room for Jesus, I would not be thinking about God. I would be watching you, especially if it was Mike Wilson, 
all right? Because I just don't imagine the dude whipping and nay-naying for Jesus in the back of the room, right? I would not picture that. I would be looking at Brother Mike and, and putting it on YouTube, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Go Warren County Public Schools, right? I mean, I just could not imagine that. Is, is, uh, and, and here's the thing, is like that, that God in the corporate worship gathering, there is a sense of order. There is a sense of don't, attract awareness to me. I want to go unnoticed in regards to, to worship. Now, does that mean that we can't raise our hands? Yeah, of course we can raise our hands in worship. Should we be singing? Yes, the Bible says, clap your hands, all your people. Do you know the Bible says that, Mission Church? Clap your hands. It also says, raise your hands. And some of you Baptists like, yeah, you do that. The Bible tells you to do that. Okay. But there's a difference in, you know, um, doing the touchdown, right? And like swaying back and forth and screaming to the top of your lungs so that we can look at you. That's what Jesus is warning against here. Making a spectacle of yourself. Because, man, we love that. We, we, loved, we loved to be worshipped. See, the Jews had forgotten their rich history of praying short but specific prayers in public. They'd adopted the rhythms and the prayer methods of the pagans who loved to repeat the same lines over and over and over again to conjure up a move by their gods. I remember growing up, I thought, man, if we go louder, then God is more likely to move than if I whisper this. We see an episode of this in Kings, don't we? In 1 Kings chapter 18, you've got Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? And they had this showdown on the mountain, right? And, and the prophets of Baal, it says there in 1 Kings that they're praying all day long for their gods to, to, to burn up the sacrifice. So they're repeating the same thing like, you know, come Baal, come Baal, burn up the sacrifice, burn up the sacrifice, come Baal. And they're doing this for hours and hours and hours. Nothing happens to the point where they're running around like cutting themselves, trying to get their God to move. Elijah, it's a great story, right? I mean, water it down, dig a trench. It's a great story. And by, and by the end, I mean, he's just like, hey, you, this is Eric Standard version again, you, do it, boom, dries it up, laps up all the water, and then we keep reading, and Elijah kills all those dudes. <laughs> like, he's a ninja, like, prophet ninja killing machine, all right? Not only is your God dumb, but you're dumb, and you're going to die for your dumbness, all right? And yet, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, they're acting like pagans, the Jews are. We're going to sing this chorus one more time. Uh-oh. We're going to sing it one more time. Do the band thing. That means keep going in music life. All right? That means stop <laughs> in the song. That means keep it going. Sometimes they do it from the side. Keep it going. All right? Preacher gets louder. Come on. You're going to go to hell. Did anybody hear me? You're going to go to hell. We're going to sing it one more time. Well, there's somebody here. There's, they say, everybody bow your head, close your eyes, right? 
Raise your hand if you need Jesus. Nobody raises their hands, but they still say, oh, I see that hand. <laughs> Why? To help you, motivate you to come on up, give your life to Jesus. See, as bad as we want to badmouth the Pharisees, we've adopted some of those practices, haven't we? I love to be worshipped. I love it. Man, I love it when, when I say to my daughter, Ava, I love you. And she goes, Daddy, I love you. I, I like that. But you know what I love even more? Is when I walk in the house before anything comes out of my lips, the days that she runs to meet me at the door and to say on her own, without being coerced, Daddy, I love you. See, one is freely given. The other one is like, you're trying to milk it. You're trying to, to milk this idea of, I, I need, you know, this, I, I need this from you. I would argue that Jesus is not saying that we cannot pray in public. Jesus will pray in public later in the New Testament. We will see early Christians praying in public. I think the question, once again, is what is the motive of praying in public? What is the motive in giving in public? What is the motive, as we'll see next week, in fasting? In the words of the great theologian John Stott, he said, behind their piety, so behind their good works, lurked their pride. What they really wanted was applause. And according to verse 5, what does Jesus tell them? They have received their reward. So Jesus says, man, they've prayed these awesome prayers. People think they're great, and they have gotten their reward. That is what they wanted. People do think that they are great. People do think that they are awesome. They were seeking their own glory, their own clout, and honor. And yet Jesus is going to give us not a specific prayer, not that we can't ever pray the Lord's Prayer, but more than that, He has given us a pattern for how our prayers should go forward. Most commonly, as I've mentioned, this is called the Lord's Prayer, but there are many people who say that a better title for it is actually the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus is teaching who? The disciples. This is how I want you to pray. Jesus is teaching them, again, this is not only the way you can pray, but this is a model of how to pray. I used to have this friend, it was an older lady um, that I used to work with, sweet, sweet lady. She was not involved in a church. She was not involved in a community of faith. Um, she claimed to be a follower of Jesus, and her personal view was, was that the only prayer that we can pray is the Lord's Prayer. You should not pray in any other way or use any other words. But she held to that conviction. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Okay? But there is a pattern that is honoring to God. Okay? So I'm going to work through these very, very quickly, each line, because again, to get to the main thing that Jesus is, going, is trying to say in this particular section of Scripture 
He says this in verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice here that Jesus, when he begins, this is how you should pray, that he does not begin with my Father in heaven. Notice Jesus uses the term our. It is a is on purpose. It is a plurality of truth here. He is saying this is a communal thing. This is a church thing. This, this is a body of believers here. It's not about my Jesus. It's about our Jesus. It's about our God. And so when we come to pray that there should be typically a, a, a language that is a corporate idea of language, even when I preach, and I struggle with this, so you're going to probably see me even not do this in this sermon, but I try to use terms instead of just always saying you, 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 us, 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 our, our, our. Because it can look like I'm just pointing my fist at you when it's really at us. Okay? Jesus is coming back for his bride. How many of you, let's do raise of hands, are about God's holiness? That means that, man, you want to live a, a holy life, a, a, a righteous life, a, a life that is honoring to God. You know, I, I think as believers, that's what we should be striving for. How many of you believe that family is important? Anybody believe that family is important? Man, I believe that family is important. Mom, dad, kids family, extended family, those things are important. See, and I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this once. He's a pastor, preacher, teacher. Um, he said, here's the thing about Christians in the West, is we'll say we're about holiness. And man, we will be about family. But how are we about being holy family? And he's not talking about what goes on at your house. He's talking about what goes on with us. See, you'll find a lot of people who are all about Jesus, and yet they do, they do church terribly. And I would, I would push into that, I would press into that, say they don't know Jesus very well. People who aren't giving their lives to the community of faith, to covenant membership, to, to not forsaking of the gathering, to discipleship, people who say and claim they love Jesus and yet aren't connected to us, there is a major discrepancy in that person's faith. I don't care how many times in private they're reading the Bible or praying. If you're not doing life specifically with Mission Church, because that's who we're gathered as this morning, then, then something is, is wrong in your relationship with Jesus. If you don't have high view of church, you do not have high view of Jesus. He is about His kingdom. He is about His bride. Jesus is coming about for us. Is it a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, but we like to edify that above, uh, above our relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves the church. He died for it, all of it. We must also understand this. He says that it's important for us to get this in the term of father. Father, Ladies and gentlemen, just because God has created all things and all people does not mean that all people are his children. You'll hear this common statement, well, we're all God's children. That is not the Bible. Only those who have been saved by the sovereign grace of God are his children. 
and can call him father. Other people, they are other people. They are created in his image, yes. Does he have general grace for them? Yes. Does he have a general love for them? Yes, but that is not the same as specific love as adoption. John chapter 8, verse 42 said, If God was your father, you would love me. He's speaking to the Pharisees. If God was your father, Pharisees, then you would love me. Not all people are God's children. And so I don't say that to, to, to bash non-believers. I say that to edify the church to say, look at the privilege of what it means for us to be called the adopted sons and daughters of God. This is great privilege this morning. It should cause us to get a little misty-eyed this morning thinking about that God Almighty calls you son, calls you daughter. And I know some of you have had rotten parents. May we be reminded this morning that Jesus, God, is a true and better father. A lot of times in this term, they, they like to translate this to mean daddy. He said, so our daddy who is in heaven. Now, I want us to be very careful about always translating Abba or, or some terms that we use in reference to daddy. Because it's not, I get what you're saying, but it, it's, it's not really the truth of behind the meaning. The term there actually means like dearest father. Dearest father. Not, not just so... Um, flippantly as, as dad, or, or, but it is an intimacy, but there's also a, a great reverence there. So a better translation is, is dearest, our dearest Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight against the drift of becoming numb to such truths as these. God is extremely patient with us. He is not, he is quick to discipline, but he is not quick to punish. If you are in Christ, do you know this morning that because of Jesus, the wrath of God is never against you? Never. Ever. The wrath of God never comes. Does his discipline come? Yes, but his, his wrath never comes against you. Why? Because it came against Jesus. And he drank that cup in the full. God loves his children. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He is unlike most of us dads in this room who are quick to pounce on. But he is patience, he is kindness, he is, he is on his knee, he is looking in the eye, he is gently guiding and coercing with discipline. Even when he holds back, it is in love, it is never in, in anger or just wrath against us. It is patiently guiding us toward himself. The term hallowed means sanctified, set apart, holy, honored, valued, treasured, unique. A lot of times when you be, we begin our prayers, have you ever noticed that we love to fill them with superlatives? Right? And we get in these habits. We all do it. I do it. You do it. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, God, Gracious Creator, Majestic, Holy One, Light, Light, Like, Love, Your Love. We, we love to throw out these superlatives toward God, and that is not all negative, 
Not saying that that is necessarily bad. However, let me give you what I believe to be as a better translation of hallowed be your name. I think the primary focus here is, is not a superlative, it is actually a request. What is Jesus saying? Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. So it's, it's not a superlative, it's actually a request to God. Primary speaking, it's, it's a request to God. He's saying this, God, let your name be magnified. Let your name be holy. Let your name be honored. Let your name be valued. Let your name be treasured. Let your name be unique. God, make your renown known. That's how he's beginning the prayer. It's actually a request, God, do this. The secondary thing is this to us is let your name be worshipped. Our Father in heaven, let your name be worshipped. Let your name be valued. Let it be primary. Let it be honored. Also secondary is, God, let your name be worshipped. Martin Luther once said this, how is God's name hallowed amongst us? When our life and doctrine are truly Christian. Life, doctrine. We start out with sound doctrine. It's reflected in life. When we have bad doctrine, we have inobedient, or we, we lack, we have disobedience in our life. We, we lack true obedience because we have poor teaching. Again, we see agreement. We see consistency between our private and public lives when we are truly followers of Jesus. Kent Hughes, the commentator, says this. When we reference God or, or, or hallow his name when our beliefs concerning him are worthy of him. We cannot hallow his name if we do not understand it. We can't worship his holiness. Something we talk a lot about mission and we're going to continue to talk about it here at Mission, is the greatness and the splendor of God. I would continue one of the biggest issues that we have in American church, the Westernized church, is we have a poor view of who God is. Therefore, it translates into poor obedience. We misunderstand the grandness. We like the enlightenment. We like freedom, free will, American freedom and liberty over the sovereign providence and authority of God. We like to, to use our constitution and our American ways, and I thank God for many of those things, but we like to read the Bible through the filter of American westernized culture instead of reading the Bible into American westernized culture. We are called by God to follow Him faithfully. Church, it is all about God. If you are bored with studying God, you're missing God. What is heaven? But all of eternity learning about this God. And some of you right now goes, man, that sounds really boring. Brothers and sisters, this should be the desire and passion of our hearts. Understanding God from who he is from the scripture should deepen our worship. So when we're singing songs about behold 
our God. We should be moved to that, not simply because of a melody, but because of the truth of that passage and what it's saying and reflecting in Isaiah chapter 40, where over and over and over again it says, behold our God, behold your God, behold, 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 grab a hold of, uh, grab, you know, cling to this almighty God. Mission Church, we need to broaden our perspective on the greatness and the magnitude of who God is. Jesus gives us a pattern of prayer that does not start with man. It starts with God. Let your glory, let your name be great. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says it this way, glory, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That that is the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and join him forever. John Piper, known for this, says it like every sermon, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. This is the idea behind this introduction in this prayer. God, you be God. Do you know that's one of the scariest things that you can pray? God, you be God. Because it wrecks rightly our existence. He goes on, your name. See, names during this time revealed one's character. They meant something. Unlike a lot of ours today, we just give names because they're cool. Like Cash. Johnny Cash. That's why he has that name. I guess that name means money. <laughs> right? Eric means courageous leader means ruler. I don't know if that's true or not. But in biblical times, name meant something. Moses, the one who's been deliverer, or the one who was drawn out, because how do they find Moses' body, baby? They drew him out of the river. Moses. David. Is, he's the man after God's own heart. Do you know what the word David means? Beloved. I don't think this is coincidence that these were these dudes' names. Jesus. God saves. Names revealed one's character. God is serious about his name. Over and over again, like in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, do not take the name of your God in vain. You can go on, Proverbs 18.10 or Psalms 111.9, and there are many others that reflect the greatness and talking about the greatness of God's name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name means something. Moses asked God, well, when I go back to Egypt and they want to know what's the name of you, what do you say? I am that I am. It is encompassing of all that is good, all that is righteous, all that is perfect. God is serious about his name. In verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does anybody have an idea what the name kingdom means? It means king's domain. Your king's domain come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to give you some theological truth that you've got to understand a lot about Christendom right now. And it's found in this phrase, now but not yet. 
There are many things in Christendom that are now, but not yet. This statement is one of those things. Your kingdom come. So we as believers should be praying, Lord Jesus, make your kingdom come. He means that in two different ways. One is an eschatological. That's a big fancy word for when Jesus comes back. All right? He's saying, man, here's the deal. Lord Jesus, come. Return. Jesus, come today. Let it be today that we should pray that way. But also, so that's, not now, because we're still here. And yet, the now is, is that God has given us a responsibility to reflect that kingdom, not simply waiting on the hillside for his return, but we are to be the embodiment of that kingdom and to live it out as his citizens, as his people, as his children, on this earth as it is right now, hoping for a better tomorrow praying for his swift return. So Lord Jesus, help me in my job today. Help me live as a citizen in America today, yet come today. Do you see that paradox? It's now, Lord, your kingdom is here now. Jesus is with us now, and yet it's not complete. It will be complete when he returns. Grant us the power to live as citizens in that kingdom now as we actively wait in, in, in understanding a global perspective and worldview. Verse 11, give us this day this daily bread. Now I'm going to go into great depths in here on this passage here in actually a few weeks. So I'm just going to hit the high point here. Give us this day our daily bread. Brothers and sisters, God has not called us to pray for bigger silos and barns. Can I be really honest? The house you got is probably big enough. The house I have is probably big enough. The car you drive is probably good enough. The clothes you already have in your closet are probably sufficient. Notice, he does not say Lord Jesus, give us some bread and a pantry to storehouse. God has not called us to be preppers. You know, I didn't say peppers, preppers. Preppers are those weird people who have like, like thousands of cans of green beans. So when the power grid goes off, I guess they're going to eat lots of green beans. God has not called us to put underground bunkers and fill them full of food so when the nuclear fallout happens that you and your family can be rescued in it and for it to be stored. He is, listen to what he's saying. Give us enough food for today. Instead of trying to hoard manna for tomorrow, give us food today. What are my basic needs, not wants? See, a lot of times we go, my God never answered my prayers. Well, that's because you're praying for a black Jeep Wrangler XL, chromed out, jacked up wheels, black on black on black, hard top, you know, like me. And as you see, I drive a beater. He's not giving that to me yet. Right? Lord Jesus, 
Give me what I need today. Why? Because having more than we need is, can easily, especially for us who love capitalism and consumerism, can so easily become a snare for us. Come back in a few weeks. I'm going to unpack that in about an hour. Verse 12, 14, and 15. I'm going to kind of clump these together. It says this, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will I, your Father forgive your trespasses. If you've been with us over the last several months, how many times has Jesus been talking about forgiveness in the Sermon on the Mount? If Jesus repeats himself or any portion of Scripture, it typically means that's really important. He tells them, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive others of their trespasses, our Father will also forgive us. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you sit there and you go, Pastor Eric, but you don't know what they did. You do not understand how evil this is. You want me to forget? You want me to forgive the person who abused me? You want me to forgive the, the, the person who, who left me and my children? You want, you want me to forgive the person who killed my child? You, you want me to forgive the uncle who goes to pick up his niece at school and disappears with her for over a week and has the nation searching for her? That's foolish. If I forgive them, they win. Isn't that what we say? That makes me look weak. Those are the ways that we think about people that we will not forgive. And yet, here's what we say. This is it scaled down to where we can get this. When we have that mentality towards people that we will not forgive, this is what we say. I'm not going to forgive, but God, you be the fool. You be the loser. You be the weak one. And don't give me what I deserve. When we fail to forgive those who have hurt us in excruciating ways, we are saying to God, when we ask for forgiveness, you be the idiot, you be the fool, you be the loser, give me what I do not deserve, but I refuse to give these people what they do not deserve. God, you be weak. This seems to be a, a, a reoccurring theme again in the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because one of the distinctives of true, authentic Christianity is the divine ability that we have as Christians to forgive those who do not deserve it. When we cease to forgive, we cease to be Christian. We cease to be separate. 
Most world religions do unto them as they have done unto you. And yet Jesus is calling us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to give people what they do not deserve. To be weak in their eyes. This is the call. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This man at first glance can be extremely difficult to understand. In James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is Jesus getting at here? Now, I'm, I'm totally gently borrowing this from John Piper, what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> All right? And this has been so helpful for me. So if you're, if you're a nerd and on the other side of your grocery list that you're making on that weekly right now, you should write this down. Okay? If you've not heard anything else, for you who love application, these are major handles for you. Okay? You need to get this. What is Jesus saying here when he says... Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. John Piper would say it like this. I agree with his exegesis here and his application here. Is this what you need to get? All of your experiences, all of your experiences are either or are a test from God or a temptation from Satan. Everything. All right? So you're single. You're like, God, I really need a wife. He may bring you a spouse, but that is either going to be a test from God or it will be a temptation from Satan. And here is how that plays out. All experiences in your life can be dumped into two buckets. They're either joyful, pleasant, or painful and sorrowful. All right? Joy, pleasant, or painful and sorrowful. Something good comes into your life. All right? Something good. Let's say, let's say you get a raise. That's a good thing, right? That can be a gift from God. And it's still, all circumstances are a test or a temptation. This is what I mean by that. You get a lot of money. You get a huge raise. Here is how God tests you. God will never tempt you, but he tests you always with everything. Whether it's a sunset or more money. It's always a test. So God gives you, through your job, your employee, you've been a good employee, he gives you a raise. Maybe you don't even deserve it, but it, you get a raise. It is a test. How does God use it as a test? Will you thank him for the increase? Or will you just think that you're awesome? That's the test. Will you thank him? Will you worship God for the increase in funds? Will you think that he is better than the amount of money that you've been given? That's how God works in everything in your life. That could be a sunset. God shows you a beautiful sunset. Will you worship God for that sunset? Will you think, oh my gosh, if this is how beautiful this sunset is, how much glorious will heaven be? Everything is a test from God. Will you worship Him? Will you thank Him for it? 
Well, you think that he is better than whatever you have been given. But the enemy takes it and leads you, he takes this gift from God and leads you to temptation with it. How does he do that? So the money. You begin to idolize money. You do not thank God for it. You thank yourself. I deserve this. I'm a good employee. It's about time they've come around to my way of thinking. Instead of worshiping God with that money, what do you do? You worship yourself. You buy more junk you don't need while simultaneously giving less. See how everything? Sunset. Look at this beautiful sunset. I should be worshiping God. I should be magnifying God. Thank you, God. You're a creator. How much beautiful are you compared to this? But instead, we won't even notice it. Or we'll just go, ah, that's a nice sunset, and have no thoughts about God. Or we begin to idolize and worship sunsets. We worship the created thing, Romans chapter 1, instead of the creator. Instead of looking at the stars, we wonder, I wonder who's out there. Instead, we would be saying, I want to know the one who specifically has placed every one of those stars in the heaven and that its very brightness is the decree that he has on its dimmer switch in his hand. Everything in your life, ladies and gentlemen, is a test. It can remain a test that you will honor God in, or it will become a temptation that you will sin in. This is true of pain. Will we trust Him in your cancer? Will you trust His goodness? Will you trust His wisdom as you go through chemo? That's the test. Where's the temptation when you get cancer? You curse God. You think God is not good. He is not wise. Don't let the test become temptation. Help us to stay true to you and not to sin. Whether it's in joy, pleasantries, or in pain. So Jesus there in that statement in verse 13 is saying, God, don't allow my test to become temptation. Keep me from the evil one. Keep me from the deception. Because I don't know about you, when bad things happen in my life, I often go, God, you are not good. That's how a test became temptation. Conclusion. Praying like Jesus is both public and private. Praying like Jesus is both public and private. Ladies and gentlemen, many of us, brothers and sisters, are like the Pharisees. We love to worship ourselves, and we love to be worshipped by others. John MacArthur once said this, people today still deceive themselves into thinking they are Christians. All they have done is dress up their old nature in religious trappings.
The Pharisees went to worship gatherings. They met in small groups. They studied the word. They prayed. But why? Why are you here this morning? Why do you come? Why, or excuse me. Why do we come to MCs? Why do we pray before meals? Is it possible, brothers and sisters, that, uh, that it is more about making sure our children get moral upbringings or because we must keep up with our reputa uh, reputation? John Stott said this, how can we pretend to be praising God when in reality we are concerned that men will praise us? We love the approval and applause of men. We love to be complimented, receive the credit for people to see our good works and to glorify us. Many times, uh, we can be doing the right thing with the wrong heart. People will celebrate us, pat us on the back, yet God knows what is taking place in our hearts. Approval is an addiction. Applause, a drug. We can get a brief high from this approval, but let's face it, we need a steady flow of this to sustain our self-esteem, don't we? We just need a constant slow drip. A slow drip of somebody telling me, man, you can preach good. You're a good daddy. You're a good pastor. Man, no one said anything to me after the sermon. It must have been terrible. If it was terrible and I did it, I'm terrible. Man, it's such an addiction. We're so consumed with self-worship and other people worshiping us that we will quickly wallow in self-pity when the effects of praise begin to wear off. And we'll simply do something else in order to get us back where we need to be emotionally. The authenticity of our salvation is measured more by what we do in private than what we do in public. The authenticity of our salvation is measured more by what we do in private than what we do in public. We must fight the drift to have public Christianity lives only. In our kids' devotional this week with, with Ava, I asked her some of these questions. I'm trying to teach our family how to pray. And I don't say for you to be impressed by me telling you that because the bakers are terrible at praying together. Something I've been be deeply convicted about and we're trying to redirect as a family because I hear my daughter praying the same way every time. Lord Jesus, help us to have a good day and a good day tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. That's what she prays, morning, lunch, dinner, noon. You're sick and dying. She's like, Lord Jesus, help us to have a good day. Help us to have a good day tomorrow. Lord Jesus, your name. All right? Every prayer. You know where she learned that? Our parents. Let me ask you some questions asked of us. What is your walk with Jesus like when there aren't any spectators? Many of us this morning brought our Bibles, but how many of us have read them this week? Many of us will bow our heads in prayer this morning. But how calloused are our knees from being in prayer at your house by yourself? 
We will often pray before meals. But do you pray for a meal when you are eating alone? Many of us will sing songs this morning about the blessedness of the cross, and yet we will go out and get into our cars and listen to music about excessive drinking, doing drugs, and sexual immorality. Many of us maybe will cry this morning in worship. How many of us have been crying this week? I want you to know that God, I think, is more concerned about what you're doing in your private life. What happens on Sunday morning should be an outfloor, outpouring. It's, it's coming together as a believer and go, man, you know what I learned this week? You know what God's showing me this week? Man, I had a, I had a breakdown moment. I, I had to pull over on the side of the road because I don't just wave my hands in church, but I wave my hands in the car when I'm listening to praise and worship music. I had to do one of those deals to call, pull over, and my hands were in the air. If, if you're the person that is waving your hands in the corporate gathering, I always want to ask the question, how many times are you doing this at home? That's what I think is the primary thing that Jesus is getting at. Is it okay to do these things in public? Yes. But what about in private? Mission Church, as one of your pastors, I am deeply concerned that many of us in this room have great public lives as Christians and terrible in our private life. You may fool us. I may fool you. But God do not, will not be mocked. He will not be fooled. He will not be deceived. And some of you are going to be sitting here today and you're thinking, man, this is me. And yet there will be no change. Brothers and sisters, may we repent from this idea that we can be holy in these huddles and yet be without Jesus and without conviction and without repentance. When, when we know more rap songs and country music songs than we have moments of worship alone with God. That's why he says, go somewhere private. Go somewhere where they won't be impressed. Go somewhere if you need to beat your chest, somebody's not going to be looking at you, but you go into that inner room. Some call it the prayer closet. It's a private place. It's a secluded place where you go and you spend those hours in prayer. We spend those hours in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to not just pack a Bible on a Sunday morning, but us pack the Bible in our hearts daily, desiring, waking up, being woken up in the middle of the night. Some of us, it's such a tension for you just to get here on a Sunday morning, and yet God is saying, I am there all the time. You are never not worshiping something. It is either yourself, sin, Satan, and death, or it is me. It should be the driver of everything that we do. If we do this in public, then we should do this in private even more. Brothers and sisters of Mission Church, may we be that community of faith. May we be that people. Take off your hypocritical mask. May I take off my hypocritical mask and may we live not as posers and pretenders and actors, but as people who are passionately pursuing the person of God, our Father as His children. And yet I'm concerned pastorally that that's not where many of us are. 
that were totally complacent. I mean, you came this morning because it was the right thing for you to do, and you thought I or someone else would be impressed because you are here, and yet your heart is dark, your motive is rotten, and Jesus is saying, repent from those things, turn to me, follow me, I will make your burden light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come together as a community of faith. May we not just be something that we have to kind of will it into existence, fake it until it becomes real, but know that it is the true desire of our hearts. But what was happening in private, you come here, brothers and sisters, and we celebrate and we sing things like, behold our God, and it means something. Jesus is speaking against this type of public-only expressions of faith. It's the age-old question, if a tree falls in the middle of the woods, but there is no one there, does it make a sound? When no one is watching you or me, how intense is our giving, our prayers, our devotional lives, our singing? So much more. So much truth, so much conviction, so much that needs to be said. By God's grace, we'll continue to do that as a family of faith. and We'll cover the things that have not been covered. But Can I shepherd you for a moment, please? Mission Church desires to be an authentic community. That means, as individuals, we must be authentic. And collectively, when we come together as holy family, there is authenticity. God is not impressed that you brought this Bible this morning. God is not impressed by our singing this morning. Hopefully the angels do it a lot better than we do. I know that at least the guitar player back there does. God's not impressed by your attendance this morning. He's not impressed by our attendance this morning. But what's Tuesday at 11 o'clock look like? What's Friday at midnight look like? How are we? How are you? How are me? And let's, let's evaluate ourselves this morning. I know I've, I've gone well over my time. But we're going we're gonna to sing a song that we've sung at Mission several months now. We've not sung it in a while. But I, I, we're going to sing one song. We're going to pray. We're going to be done today. But I, my prayer is that we will sing it as a prayer. And the song is yearn. We've, we've sung it. You know it. Several of you is that this idea, Lord, I, I want to yearn for you. I don't want to just have some emotional experience on a Sunday morning, but I, I want to I I know you emotionally, physically, spiritually on Monday afternoon. When my kids are being rotten. When I'm being a terrible husband. When I'm being a lazy employee. When it's time to pay my taxes. Or time to give in the offering. When it's time to forgive that enemy who maybe to this day still hates you, but you're going to be set free by God's grace and through him as he no longer becomes your enemy.
she no longer becomes your enemy. I long to be a part of a real community of faith. But I also realize for that to happen, for me to be a part of that, I got to be real. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. I think that's the primary thing that Jesus is getting at and teaching us how to pray. Just don't be hypocritical. Pray in a God-honoring way in private so that when we come together in public, it is not about us. Please don't be impressed with me. Jesus is a true and better preacher. And don't completely lose heart if we as your pastors fail you. Because Jesus is the true and better pastor. But may we seek Him and yearn for Jesus in all that we do. Stand with me. Let's pray. You've been great. I love you.